0: We're talking, we're in the middle of the discussion about the hindrances. Okay, so the first one was um, laziness, okay, not being able to get ourselves in the cushion. And what do we do to combat that? Okay, then aspiration, then effort, pliancy. okay. So those four are the antidotes to the first one about laziness. Remember? So laziness is, you know, when we're too busy, we're distracted with other things, or we're, um, you know, just hanging around, or we're very discouraged. So to combat that, then we need to think about the advantages of calm abiding. And by thinking about all the advantages, then our mind gets excited. You know, we have a sense of faith and then from there aspiration comes that we want to practice this and get the result, and from then we get effort to put into the practice, and then that leads eventually to having pliancy of body and mind, which makes it very, very easy to practice, and that's the actual antidote to the laziness. Then the second one, the second hindrance was um, forgetting the, the object of meditation. Okay, and then what is the antidote to that? Mindfulness, okay. So that means remembering the object of meditation, going over the details, fixing it in the mind so that the distraction doesn't arise. Then the third um, hindrance is, yeah, laxity and excitement. And that's what we were talking about last time. when it, We went into a big discussion about laxity and the, the gross laxity and the subtle laxity. And how if you don't take care of those, then you get lethargy, which is when you're falling asleep. Remember? Okay. And so that's, you know, when we start falling asleep, then, you know, we've definitely lost the stability. You know, there's no stability. We've lost the object. If our mind gets super excited and runs after something, we've also lost the object. We've also lost the stability. But with laxity itself... We aren't really, that, that was the lethargy that is when we're, you know, on the verge of sleeping. But the laxity is when we're more just spaced out. So there is stability, there is some clarity. With the gross laxity, there's not a whole lot of clarity. But with the subtle laxity, there can be a lot of clarity. Remember, clarity meant clarity of the subjective mind, not just of the object. Uh-huh. And so you know you can see that that sometimes when you when you sit down to meditate you know i mean the first big challenge you have to get through okay getting yourself to sit down and then when we start doing this is remembering the object of meditation and getting yourself to, to put your mind on it to start with yeah you know? cuz sometimes we finish saying the prayers and then the mind you know doesn't even hit the object to meditation it's already started to wander yeah you know? and so <laughs> we have to remember you know breath, or Buddha, or whatever it is we're meditating on, and make that mindfulness strong so at least at the beginning we can get our mind on the object and get it, you know, have some stability there. And at the beginning, it's really much more important to, to just focus on trying to keep the mind on the object. Don't worry so much about the clarity. Worry more about just keeping your mind there. And as things happen, then just keep bringing it back and bringing it back and bringing it back. Okay, and then once you have some kind of, your mind's on the object, then you get either the the laxity or the excitement that that then interrupts. Okay, so you're just getting there, you just have kind of an image of the Buddha, maybe it's not super clear, but you're on it, and you know, for more than two seconds, and there you go, and then whammo, okay, maybe laxity hits, and you can feel your mind start to get slightly spacey, yeah, and then the mind just doesn't feel completely present. It doesn't feel vivid. It feels somehow, you know, foggy, veiled. Something something isn't right. Okay? So then when we have the laxity, then comes the antidote, what you were just talking about. Okay? Visualizing your mind as a, in, as a small white P at your heart and saying the syllable K and imagine shooting it up and out and you know, blending with the sky, and so that expands the horizon. You know. Or, because the mind is too depressed, then you temporarily shift your object to meditation and you think about something that's going to uplift the mind, like precious human life, bodhicitta, the qualities of the triple gem, something that you've meditated on before, please, 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 please. um, you know. <laughs> Uh, so that they're familiar with your mind, so that then when you think of them now, then the mind can, you know, get happy thinking about them, and that wakens the mind, it refreshes it. And then if none of those things work, you know, and here we're talking about a retreat situation, uh, then you would temporarily break your session, go take a break, take a walk, splash cold water, look a long distance, and then come back and have another session. You know, and here we're talking about this in terms of retreat. In terms of your daily practice, if every, if every time you started to, to get lax, you stopped your session, you'd never have a daily practice. Okay. So sometimes, you know, in spite of it all, we have to hang in there with our daily practice and keep going. Okay. Then the other thing that that, um, that takes us away from the object of meditation here is excitement. And excitement was, was when it's basically a form of attachment, and our mind starts going towards something that's pleasurable, something that, that we want that, that's going to bring us happy. So it could be food or sex or money or beaches or flowers or you name it. Our mind can get attached to almost anything. So this is the predominant kind of thing that that leads our mind away from the object of meditation. Although we may have a form of distraction too. And distraction can include when we're, when a lot of anger, resentment, jealousy comes up. You know, we get all of this when we meditate. And we get all sorts of different emotions. Sometimes we might even be distracted by a virtuous object. We might be trying to meditate on the figure of the Buddha and then all of a sudden we want to think about Bodhicitta instead. You know, so our mind wants to, to go to something else, um, more virtuous. Or like we were talking last time, we start planning all these great Dharma centers we're going to build and Dharma activities we're going to do and, and everything. So that's also a form of distraction when we're doing the meditation. So this time I wanted to talk more specifically about excitement because I think this is probably one of the things that that we confront a lot. And in the same way as with laxity we had gross and subtle, well, same with excitement. And in the same way with the laxity, it wasn't just two types, but it was kind of a, you know, a, a shade of gray between the gross and the subtle. So too with excitement, you know, there's gross and then it shades into the subtle. So the gross excitement is when, you know, some desirable object pops into your mind and off you go, okay? You're off the object to meditation and you're daydreaming, yeah? So everybody knows what, we're talk- what I'm talking about, <laughs> okay? Um, <laughs> so that is, is fairly easy to recognize. Um, but to recognize it, we have to use this other mental factor that is called alertness, introspective alertness. And this is the same one we use to recognize the laxity. And this is one that comes and it's like a little spy and it comes from time to time and checks up to see if we're concentrating or not. So when we don't have uh, the introspective alertness very much, then our mind goes off in excitement. We start daydreaming about something and then ten minutes later you hear this and you go, oh, wow. Yeah, because you didn't even realize you were distracted. You didn't realize you were daydreaming. Okay, so that happens because the introspective alertness is very, very weak. So what we need to do is strengthen that introspective alertness so that it can be, it can catch the wandering mind sooner. So instead of catching it when the bell rings, maybe we can catch it after a minute or catch it after a few seconds. Okay, so that, that introspective alertness is very, very important. And I think as we develop that generally in our lives, it's going to be very, very useful because it helps us, that mental factor helps us to get to know ourselves. Because, you know, sometimes you get in the car and you drive from home to work, and if somebody asked you when you got to work, what did you think about in the car, you couldn't tell them, you know. You know that that you were thinking about things the whole time in the car, but you couldn't, you can't even remember. Well, that again is because of, there's no introspective alertness coming up, because the introspective alertness is what pops up from time to time and kind of surveys the situation and says, "What am I thinking? What's going on here? Is my mind doing what I want it to do?" So the reason that our, our mind so often just rambles all over the place and we don't know what's going on in it is a, a great extent due to this lack of introspective alertness, this lack of the little spy that pops up from time to time. Yeah. If the spy pops up and sees that we're wandering, then we can renew the mindfulness. In the meditation, we renew the mindfulness by t- returning our mind back to the object of meditation. In our daily life, we renew the mindfulness by going back, let's say, if you're driving the car, to reciting the mantra. Okay? Or going back to remembering what your precepts are. Or going back to thinking about the teaching that you had. Or going back when you're in the, co- you know, traffic jam to thinking about all these sentient beings want happiness and none of them want suffering. So you renew your mindfulness about some virtuous object that you're contemplating. This is just in your daily life, uh, so that you can really make them, you know, take advantage of, of, um, of everything that's happening in your life to really practice. Okay? So with the uh, excitement, we have to notice it with the introspective alertness. And then with the gross excitement, what we have to do is because the mind is too elevated, it's too hyped up, it's too excited and has too much energy, what we need to do is think about something very, very sobering, okay? So we think about suffering, we think about death, we visualize skeletons. I mean, this is really great. I mean, when you get the giggles in meditation and you can't stop, just visualize skeletons. It works really well, okay? I've tried it many times. Yeah? When, when your mind's just completely bananas all over the place, yeah? Then, then just sit and, and, and imagine corpses and think about, you know, the death of your loved ones. Think about your own death. Think about the transient nature of life. Visualize yourself as an old person and what it's going to feel like. Visualize yourself as being sick and what it's going to feel like. So something that just sobers the mind down. So, again, don't think of these things when your mind is already slightly depressed, when you're having laxity or lethargy. Okay? When the mind is depressed, then you think of something like precious human life qualities, the Buddhist, to uplift the mind. When your mind is too excited here with attachment, then you think of something to bring it down. Okay? With me? Yeah. Okay. Then the subtle attachment is, uh, the subtle excitement, is you haven't really completely lost the object of meditation. But you're kind of like you're on the object, but something else is going on too. So there's different situations they use to describe it. They say it's like a fish under the water, okay? The water's smooth, but something's going on there. The fish swims under the water. So in the same way, you know, with your meditation, you're mindful of the image of the Buddha. You're mindful of what you're meditating on. But something else is, is going on. You know, it's like you can feel sometimes that it's like you can feel the energy if you're about ready to give birth to a really good attachment here. Yeah, yeah the mind's really about ready to go off on some tangent. So it's that... The subtle excitement is when the mind's about ready to go off, okay? Or another instance of it is when you're on the object, but you kind of keep going off and on, off and on. It's like, you know, you're you're saying the mantra, but you're also daydreaming at the same time, yeah? Or you're kind of there visualizing the Buddha, but you're also planning things at the same time and thinking of what you're going to get and how you're going to spend your money. But the Buddha's still kind of there, Yeah? or the breath is still kind of there, you know, you're you're kind of with the breath, you know, at least you get in when it's going in and out when it's going out, or rising, (laughs) you know. You're not saying rising when you're exhaling. So you're kind of with the breath, okay, but you're not completely there because the mind's just getting like this and it's it wants to go off on something else. So that's the subtle excitement. And that one's a little bit more difficult to recognize, but again, we use the introspective alertness to recognize that. And then there's various ways to deal with this. One way is, and the way that's often encouraged in in um, the the vipassana meditation is taught in the Burmese tradition is just to note it, just to observe it, okay? Label whatever it is. Label it excitement. Label it attachment. Label it restlessness. Label it daydreaming. Whatever it is, be aware of that, but don't feed that energy into it, and instead, you know, let it kind of peter out and shift your attention back to the breath. For some people, that works really, really well. For other people, that, that, that technique doesn't work so well. And for other people, what they need to do is this much more sobering meditation of thinking about death and suffering and impermanence, or thinking about the disadvantages of attachment, or asking themselves, even if I got what, I, what I'm attached to, would it make me happy, or would, you know, what other problems would it bring? So for some people, they need much more of an analytic approach to really see how that is a disturbing attitude and something worthy to be let go of. Yeah, and we go off with the subtle excitement. What we need to do there is um, is loosen the mind a little bit, relax the mind a little bit. You know, we don't necessarily need to meditate on death or something like that because it the problem isn't quite so serious. But the but the subtle excitement comes because we've tightened the concentration too much. Our mind's getting kind of a little bit pushy, a little bit tense. We're We're kind of trying too hard. And so it's this delicate balance in in the meditation between making your attention too loose and too tight. And if you make it too tight, the mind's going to get excited. It's going to get like this. If you make it too loose, then the mind's going to get lax. And again, you know, these kind of teachings I find extremely helpful because I was telling you how before when I would start falling asleep, I would think about death, which was the absolute wrong thing to do when you're falling asleep. And similarly, sometimes when my mind would get excit- excited, what I'd do is I would tell myself, I have to concentrate stronger, I have to concentrate stronger. And that's the exact opposite thing than what you really need to do because you don't need to push yourself at that moment. You need to have kind of mindfulness, have your introspective alertness, but there needs to be a certain kind of relaxation in the mind, and not this kind of stuff, when they, when you have the subtle excitement. Okay? It's interesting, isn't it? Okay, um... Oh, they say that another way to deal with the excitement is to um, meditate on a black drop at your navel, you know, at your navel chakra. Because the thing is, again, when the mind gets too excited, if you lower the concentration level in the body, the energies of the body lower. The same way that when the mind was too lax, we visualized something white at the heart and shot it up and out. And here the mind's out all over, so we visualize something dark and lower in the body, you know, and small, so we bring the concentration in. Okay, so that can also act as an antidote to help the the excitement calm down. Okay, so like I was saying before, that this, um, the introspective alertness is described as an antidote to both the laxity and the excitement. And this introspective alertness is... Uh, it's an aspect of wisdom or it's the nature of wisdom. So it's not listed specifically as a separate mental factor, but it's included within the mental factor of what's translated sometimes as wisdom or more often translated as intelligence. So it's, it's just that mind that can discern what's going on and can discri- discriminate you know, when we're on something skillful and when we're on something not, when our mind's going in the right direction, when our mind is going astray. So that's why it's an aspect of intelligence, because it can discriminate. And so that's very, very helpful. Because when you're meditating, if you take a look at what's going on in your mind, but you don't know what it is, if it's something to practice or something to abandon, then you get really confused. So this, this thing of introspective alertness helps us to discern that. And then after that, we can apply the antidote. So the introspective alertness itself isn't what removes the laxity or the excitement. It just notices them. And then other aspects of the mind follow suit to apply the antidote, either loosening the, the concentration, tightening the, the concentration, um, switching to another object temporarily, or something like that. Okay? So it's the thing that notices, and then we, we bring in other antidotes, okay? Okay, so what else about this? Oh, so they give an analogy that's quite good. If, if your hand is holding the glass and your eye looks at it, okay? So the glass is like the object to meditation. Your hand is the mindfulness. So your mindfulness is on the object of meditation. And then every once in a while you look at it to, to make sure that you're not spilling it. So with the introspective alertness, it's a fine balance here. You don't want to use it too much. Because okay? if you sit there and look at yourself all the time, you're going to get so nervous you're going to drop the whole thing. Okay, so the same way with the introspective alertness, we need to be real skillful, and it comes up from time to time, not too often. But if it doesn't come up enough, then it's like holding the glass, but you know, not watching what you're doing, and sooner or later, you're going to spill it. So that's it's one you know analogy how the mindfulness and the introspective alertness play together. Another analogy is um, talking about. They use the example, of course, of an elephant, you know. If you're, (laughs) maybe, (laughs) you can relate to elephants, I guess, maybe dogs might be more our experience. But if you're walking an elephant down the street, you're going to be more concerned with keeping the elephant on the street, but you also have to be concerned that he doesn't go off and to pay attention that he doesn't go off okay so the elephant is you know kind of like um the street is our object of meditation the elephant is is our our attention and the mindfulness is you know the elephant staying on the street watching you know having the elephant stay on the street so that's the principal thing we have to do is have that stability of the the mindfulness on you know there so the elephant doesn't go somewhere else so the mind doesn't go somewhere else but we also have to uh, you know, make sure that the elef- that the that the elephant doesn't go somewhere else. Okay? So the main thing is to keep him there, but you also look to see he doesn't go somewhere else. So that is like the introspective alertness where you you know it comes up and sees, am I going somewhere else? Am I falling asleep? Am I spaced out? Am I daydreaming? Am I planning my the rest of my life? Okay, whatever it is. Okay. Um See, all these different things are mental factors, so they're there with the mind, and then some of the mental factors may not be very strong, like the mindfulness or the introspective alertness, but they're there, and so if we practice, we increase them. We increase them, okay? So we shouldn't think that they're not there, and we're having to create something that's not there. Because, see, this is the whole idea of Buddha potential, that the the factors necessary for enlightenment are already there. But what we have to do is bring them out and make them grow. So we learn the mindfulness. We learn the the introspective alertness. And the way they're learned or the way they're developed is simply through practice. It's like habituating our mind, making new habits. I've been transcribing something uh, from the conference we just had with His Holiness. And His Holiness, uh, the part I was uh, doing today, he was saying, because somebody asked him about Westerners and what qualities, you know, the strengths and weaknesses he saw in Westerners. And he said, (laughs) well, he said, you're very practical. And, and he said, you're very practical. You want to do something, and you want to see results. And, you you know, you want to see those results. Whereas we Tibetans, you know, yeah, we believe in the Bodhisattva stages. We believe in Buddhahood. But we're a little bit complacent, and, and we think, yeah, they're there, but they'll come later. Yeah. So he says, therefore, you know, kind of the Tibetans don't get the energy to practice. Um, they have the faith. They have the belief. But... There isn't that kind of energy, and so with the Westerners, maybe the faith and belief isn't real, real stable. But there's a lot of energy, because he said we're practical. We want to see results, um, and so that we have to take that practical mind that, uh, that wants to see results and make sure that we use it, but use it consistently, and that's the whole idea of practice, again and again and again. So he also made the comment that with a Tibetan there's not too much danger that they're going to give up the practice because, you know, they have, you know, Bodhisattva stage Just yeah, it comes a long time in the future, so I'm not expecting to get them now. I'll just do my practice and they'll come when they're ready. Whereas we, the downside of our, of our practical mind that wants results is that we're sitting there, you know, digging up the flower seed every day to see if it's sprouted yet yeah and so we we' you know we, we're so eager we want to get somewhere in our practice, and that that itself becomes an obstacle, so it's this whole thing of continuous practice yeah to have he what he was kind of saying you know was talking about was this merging between east and west, where you have the westerners' you know effort to to do the practice, but the easterners' kind of long range visions to to be able to stay with it, yeah. So it's this whole idea really of practice again and again and again that things aren't going to drop like bombshells out of the sky. And, you know, now I have perfect concentration. I slip into samadhi and there I remain. You know, maybe in the movies, but. <laughs> okay. Okay. So that's about the first three of the five hindrances. And remember, the third hindrance had two parts, the laxity and excitement.